morning has been filled with distraction. There are all kinds of distractions. There are spiritual distractions that distract us away from the purpose and reason why we have gathered. There are mental distractions that cause our mind to drift off into the worries of tomorrow or the things left over from yesterday. And there's physical distractions, anywhere from blinking lights to, to the fluttering of the electricity. And, and we need God now to take command of these distractions. And we need Him to bring His orderliness to our minds, our spirit, our soul, our bodies, for the glory of His name at this time. As we begin and turn our attention to Matthew 24, we will rely upon the Spirit of God. I'm going to pray as we, before we read the text, and then I'll also pray again once after. Our Father, as we have noted already, there are many distractions in our midst, and you are the God of order, a God of peace, a God that wants us to be still and quiet to know that you are God. There have been many things in many of our lives already before we have come to this place today that have distracted us. And yet now we desire to commit this, the entirety of the rest of this hour to your holy name and to the glory of our great God. We desire for you to take command of our minds and our, all of the distractions, our pains, our, our mental uh, distractions, and our spiritual struggles. Lord, we desire that we would lift up everything and put it all upon the altar, that we would sacrifice the entirety of our being to the praise and the glory of our God in Christ Jesus. So we ask that you would fall fresh upon us with your spirit and guide us in this time together for the glory of your holy name. We pray you would lift our countenance and lift our spirits that we can now see the the, the glory of God in His Word. And so we ask that your Spirit would now attend this time and guide us in the reading and the preaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear with me now the Word of God beginning at verse 1 of Matthew 24. I'll cease my reading at verse 21 as we now look to this portion of the Scripture. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. 
And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let he, him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babes in those days. And I pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Our Father, as we consider this text this morning, we pray that we would see the God behind this, the God of this, and the God who is our God. We pray that you would send your spirit out to give us an understanding of this text. He who reads this, let him understand. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to embrace this teaching. And we pray that you would bless the application to each of our lives with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In Luke 13, we read about a time when Jesus told a parable about a fig tree. And the parable was of a man who planted a fig tree in the middle of his vineyard. And he came seeking the fruit of that fig tree, but he found none. And so he did this for three years. Until finally he told the keeper of his vineyard, and the tender of the fig tree says, just cut it down. What use is it? There's no fruit. And his keeper said, let's try it for one more year. This time I'll dig around it. I'll put fertilizer in it. Let's give it one more year to see if it'll produce fruit. And if not, then we'll cut it down. As we think about that particular parable and the illustration, this is what is going on with Jesus and the nation of Israel for now, over three years, he's gone through Israel, and he's been ministering his messianic ministry to his people. And he's looking for fruit. Israel is God's fig tree. And it was their unfruitfulness and their disposition toward God, which was identified particularly so against Christ, that was the exhibition of their fruitlessness. It was because of their disposition toward God and their unfruitful lives that they ultimately rejected His Son, Christ, which is their Messiah and ours. And it was because of this reason of their unfruitfulness and their rejection of Christ that God's judgment came upon them. It came severely. It came righteously. It came without reserve. This chapter is dealing with the disciples' questions. When the destruction of the temple will come? When will the Son of Man come? When will be the end of the age? All of those really are wrapped into one question. 
The coming of Christ is not referring in this text of the second bodily return of Christ, but rather an apocalyptic coming in judgment upon the temple, upon the holy city Jerusalem, and upon the Jews whose identity is so wrapped up and inseparable from the temple and Jerusalem. God's judgment and what he did would occur between the years of A.D. 66 and A.D. 70, more particularly 67 to 70, and it was severe. But it was also deserving for Israel had themselves characteristically rejected God and had destroyed the prophets that God had sent to them, ultimately rejecting his own son and all the bearers of the truth that would come on uh, shortly after that. This morning I want to preach to you about God's judgment on a people who forsake him and live fruitless lives. If we might remember the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, God plants a garden and he desires and delights in a fruitful garden. And the covenant in the garden image here go hand in hand. The original garden has both for man its blessings and its curses. Man was given to tend that garden and to keep it and protect it from evil. And these vineyard illustrations throughout the scripture are sometimes used to depict Israel, the nation as a whole, as we read in Isaiah 5, as we have related in, in Psalm um, 80, as we have read from John 15, as we have heard of parables. And as we read what Jesus is depicting in this chapter, we need to keep in mind the context in which he's informing them of this very thing. We have to keep all of this together. From Matthew 21 through Matthew 27, all of this is going to happen within one week. And there's a lot of chapters to maintain and to keep all together because when we read Matthew, we have read over the course up to that time a ministry that has occurred for about three years to get us up to chapter 20. But now in these chapters, all of this is going to happen now in a compacted week together. On the time in which the disciples came to him and Jesus is sitting down and describing to him when these things will come, it's on a Wednesday evening of Passion Week. He's explaining to him the destruction of the temple, the coming of the abomination of desolation which Daniel prophesied. Jesus had just entered Jerusalem three days earlier on what we would refer to as Palm Sunday. On the following Monday, the next day, Two days before Jesus' is giving, or two days, yes, before, uh, what happens is he comes upon a fig tree. And he sees that the fig tree has leaves on it, but it has no fruit. And he curses the fig tree. The next day on Tuesday, according to Mark's gospel, which gives us a little more detail of the timing, the disciples come back upon that fig tree, and there it was, had so suddenly withered, and they marvel at that. Then on this third day of Wednesday, Jesus is instructing his disciples about the coming of the end of the age. And the cursing of that fig tree for its unfruitfulness and its sudden death is because of Christ's covenantal judgment upon it, and that was a living picture of what was about to happen suddenly to Israel 
in the generation of which he spoke. Israel had become apostate. They had received their final warning. And soon they would cease to be a nation. And God would make the Gentiles a nation that would replace the nation of Israel. And that is what we refer to as the church. One moment they were declaring his praise in the triumphal entries. He rode upon a donkey into Jerusalem and they were saying and singing the praises of their king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. And within days they were saying, we will not have this man reign over us. Christ judges people who do not accept his lordship over them. What God is looking for is fruit in our lives. And that fruit is not so much what you did for him, but the disposition of character that you have for him and his people. Jesus explained that back in Matthew 7 when he says, Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, have you, we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? Have we not done all of these good ministries in your name? And he will declare unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus is looking for a garden. He's looking for a vineyard full of fruit, a fig tree loaded with figs. And it is in the character and the attitude and our disposition and a heart that is bent on the glory of God that will be that fruitfulness. This character is seen in the fruit of the Spirit. There's nine fruit that demonstrates this fruitfulness that God desires and delights to see in His people, given in Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, long-suffering and gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. It's also revealed in the characteristics of the beatitude character in Matthew chapter 5, to be poor in spirit. That's a humility. The ones who mourn for sin and for the unrighteousness of the world, for meekness, for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for the merciful, and for those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, and those who are persecuted willingly for righteousness' sake. It's the characteristic of, of love found in 1 Corinthians 13 when it is characterized this, this godly love as one that suffers long and is kind. It does not envy, it does not parade itself, is not puffed up, and it does not behave itself rudely. It does not seek its own and is not provoked and it thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. And it bears all things, and it believes all things, and it hopes all things, and it endures all things. And it never fails. 
It's a characteristic that is a whole new way of living life. It is not the natural life into which we were born into in Adam. It is a transformed life in Christ, renewed by the Spirit of God as a new creature in Christ. It is a new way of thinking. It is a new attitude that we have. It is a new disposition toward God away from ourself. It's expressed in our relationships, our relationship to God in Christ and in His people. And as Christ ministered for three years, this is what He was looking for in a people. People that would bow to His kingship and His lordship. But He found no good fruit. Only hostility toward Him. And when Christ didn't find the fruit that He sought for in the nation as a whole, sure, there were individuals here and there, but they were actually, compared to the entirety of the whole, few. When he did not find that in his own people Israel, he declared at the very end of the parable of the, of the vineyard in this context, in Matthew 21, that he gave to them two days before on Monday, he says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing its fruits. Israel had repeatedly despised the blessings of God. In His grace, God sent prophets to His people throughout the Old Covenant. And He would send the prophets to get them back into a faithfulness to the covenant, to call them to repentance. And yet, through their entire history, the Jews persecuted them and they killed them. He mentions that even in Matthew 23 in the same context the day before when they killed Zechariah between the temple and the altar. The zenith of this rejection came when they rejected Christ Himself. They had already done that objectively and they were about to do that by nailing Him to the cross. And therefore He gives them that parable of the vineyard where the vineyard owner comes and he puts in charge of his vineyard those keepers of the vineyard. And he goes away and then he sends his servants back and they kill him. And he does this a couple of times. So he finally says, I'll send my son. They'll respect him. And they kill the son. As Jesus was telling this parable to the leaders of Israel, they understood that they, he was speaking of them in this rejection of the son. Jesus warned his own disciples who were loyal to him, they'll also kill you. We even read and read in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who just before he was stoned to death, he declared to the Jews his final words when he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, as do you. So do you, which the prophets did your fathers not persecute, and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom now you have become the betrayers and murderers. He's telling them the truth. Oh, it's hard truth. It's difficult truth. Truth is not what they wanted to hear, but it was the truth. It was God's word. They had rejected Christ, and they rejected the disciples, and they rejected those who spoke the truth. And when people reject Christ, they often go after the ministers of His Word. Historically, that's been true. 
We see this from the beginning with the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman between Cain and Abel. We see this later between Jacob and Esau, which would later grow up to be two nations, the Israelites and the Edomites. We see this with Korah challenging Moses, with Saul and David, with Zechariah and his Jewish murderers. We see this with Jesus and the Jews, with Stephen and the Jews. We see this with so many martyred in the church through the ages of its history. We see that in the Spanish Inquisition. We see this going on throughout the history of the church. The list goes right up to today. Some of the fiercest enemies of God are in the church. And their hostility often finds its target to those who minister the word. And as a nation, Israel had become apostate in this. They had received their final warning, and soon they would cease to be a nation. And God would then make the Gentiles the nation that would replace them. One moment they were declaring His praise, but in days they would say, we will not have this man reign over us. And Christ is going to judge them and judge them severely for their unfruitful rejection and apostasy. A genuine relationship with Christ will always be a fruit-bearing relationship, a fruit-bearing life. Christ desires fruit from us. He sought us and He chose us so that we would go and bear forth fruit because that's what pleases the Father. And if you're you give your life in humility to Christ, if you confess your sins and you humble yourself and you seek God's forgiveness and you commit your life to follow Him and bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, He will bring forth that fruit in your life. You have to give yourself to trust Him and obey Him. As the old hymn would say, trust and obey, there is no other way. But that's not what the Jews did. So Jesus foretells of a great judgment that is about to come upon them, the likes of which has not ever been nor will ever occur again. It is important for us to understand the reason why Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed and the nation of Israel will cease to belong. And that will help us to understand the proper framework of Matthew 24 and what is going on here. It's important for us to view this through the biblical lens that Christ is coming to judge His people. It's not what the Romans did. It's what Christ did. We have to keep that together. God used the Babylonians years earlier under Nebuchadnezzar to come in and destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple and to exile his people. But it was God's judgment upon his people. Babylonians couldn't have done that had the people been faithful and had not God called up Nebuchadnezzar to be his servant, according to the Scripture. He will now use the Romans as his servant to destroy the city, destroy the temple, and bring judgment on Israel to, to, to basically cease their existence as a nation. 
But the point here that we need to keep together with the context, it was God judging His own people for their covenant breaking and infidelity to Him. And that's why it makes no sense to still have Matthew 24, as some eschatological pundits would have it, still very far in our future. They're disconnecting every bit of the context in which Jesus is answering these questions. And even when he said all of the righteous blood from Abel, even through the prophets, will happen in this generation and it will be required of your hands, speaking to the leaders that Jesus was then speaking to in the chapter before. All of this is happening within three days so far. In the beginning of Matthew 24, Jesus begins answering the question of the disciples. When will the end of the age come? When will it be here? And he's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the Jewish age at the coming of the kingdom of Christ. And that needs to be held together with everything in context that's gone on that shaped and formed this up to this moment. So what Jesus is going to do, he's going to give them a number of signs. He's going to give them seven signs, each which will grow and bring greater clarity to the time in which he is coming. Let's go through just very quickly some of these signs. The first signs were going to be the beginning of signs. These were kind of birth pains, the beginning of the labor, but they were not the full orb. These are general these are not very specific. In fact, I think from them you could probably find these signs in any given generation throughout the history of the church so far. So we don't have to be looking for the headlines, and every time an earthquake comes up, we need to think, that oh, it's about the end to come, or a new false prophet arises. No, these were the beginning of the signs of which others would be added to them more specifically so we can understand what happens when A.D. 70 comes around, it was all in fulfillment of these things. Now these first signs, the first one here mentioned was false messiahs will rise up. We know even from Scripture we have several names of these false messiahs. There were many of them. Acts chapter 8 and verses 9 and 10 tells us of one of these, Simon Magus. Irenaeus says of this Simon that for his magic... He was honored by Claudius Caesar and was glorified by many as a god. You might remember this Simon. He saw that the Spirit of God fell upon those, and then he wanted the Spirit of God too. He was a magician, a sorcerer, and he wanted to try to buy the Holy Spirit. Hey, give me this. I'll, I'll pay. And, and he was called out for it, and he, Peter told him he had a root of bitterness in him, meaning that his heart was not truly regenerate. This is a man who had given a false profession, had shown some allegiance to Christ at first, was even baptized, but then had this root of bitterness because he wanted this for magical purposes for himself. He goes on later to, to show that that is what would, ha would happen. He was honored by Caesar himself. He appeared to the Jews as the son and to the Samaritans as the Father, and to other nations as the Holy Ghost. This is how he would later present his life 
in the realm of which he lived. Simon endeavored to be a rival of Christ, according to the early church fathers, and he came to teach in Rome, where he then represented himself as God and the Word of God. That was one of those false messiahs. Thutis was another one that we know by name, because Gamaliel mentions this man in Acts chapter 5. Verse 36, in verse 37, he mentions another name. There was Judas of Galilee. These were men who rose up and their works were not empowered by God and they fell away. During the Nero's reign, there were so many false prophets and they became so numerous that Nero daily apprehended and killed false prophets every single day. That's how many of them arose with these false claims. The second sign here was wars and rumors of wars. And this was a time in which the Pax Romana was going on. And there was the peace of Rome for about the past 60 years. But there was increasing activity, and particularly so when the Jews themselves started a, a, a war against the Romans in AD 66. And that would actually lead to their end. A third was natural disasters such as famines and pestilences and, and those things. And we have an example even of this in the scripture that we read about a large-scale famine in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul was going around to the different churches in Macedonia, and he mentions this in the Corinthian epistle, that he was collecting funds to go to relieve the saints back in Jerusalem during this time of great famine there. Now, those were general indications showing that this is going to get close. The next thing we read about in verse 9 are these persecutions, and this sign was more now prominent. The disciples themselves would be facing a great persecution, and he tells the disciples in this private uh, conversation with him, they will kill you. And the persecution of the disciples came from both the Jews on the one hand and also from Rome on the other. In fact, we read about one of these great persecutions of the Jews in Acts 8, where there's a man by the name of Saul. And under the persecution of Saul, there was a scattering out from Jerusalem out into other parts of the world. And that's where we see this man was later converted that we know Paul. That was one of those persecutions, and there would be a great apostasy, verses 10 through 13. These are going to be definitive signs of the end. Then there's one called worldwide evangelism. I know that some modern pundits of, of eschatology will say that Christ will not come until the world is evangelized. But we need to understand this actually happened in the time before A.D. 70 according to the way that the apostles spoke in their day. Considering this context, the world to them was the Roman Empire and even the nations that the Roman Empire had subsumed under their imperial government. So... A few years before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, Paul wrote to the Colossian church, and he says this in Colossians 1, 5 and 6, Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has in all of the world in bringing forth fruit. 
He says in Colossians 1.23, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. In Romans 1.8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. In Romans 10.18, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all of the earth and their words to the end of the world. There's a numerous examples of which the apostles and those who wrote Scripture used that the gospel had gone out to all of the world. And so according to the Bible, the gospel would be preached before the coming of Jesus in judgment in A.D. 70. And that was a crucial sign, and the disciples themselves had said that had happened. So we're not looking for that still to happen. That is something of our past. And when the disciples used that language in their own writing, they understood that relationship to what Jesus had previously told them. And then we come to a more intense moment when it gets to this abomination of desolation, a more clear sign that we have in verses 15 through 18. It says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. He mentions this abomination of desolation, which was a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Daniel had prophesied this hundreds of years ago, along with that prophecy, and even in the seven week, 70 weeks prophecy, we'll have the timing of the coming of Messiah, the death of this Messiah, a cutting off of the sacrifice, and here we have this fulfillment in a contiguous time frame of all of that prophecy that Daniel gave of the coming of the abomination of desolation. And when they see it, they're going to know, here it is, it is at hand. Now, this abomination of desolation had to occur while the temple was still standing because it would include the temple in its fulfillment. This is why some modern prophecy pundits who claim that still maintain that there has to be a temple built in Jerusalem for this prophecy to be fulfilled. And the problem with that is it negates their other principle of an imminent return of Christ because that temple is not yet built and it hasn't been for 2,000 years, negating the very principle of an imminent return of Christ by their own system. Now Daniel prophesied this depiction, this depiction of this fulfillment in the day in which Jesus, the Messiah who came, would, would, would live. It was con, conjoined together with this. And Jesus said that this would happen in his generation. He said that several times, including in this very chapter. By no means all of these things will take place. In this generation, this generation will not pass away. In other words, what he's saying is, if we were to look at a generation being somewhere between 25 and 40 years, it's going to happen sometime in the next 25 to 40 years. The term abomination here is 
used throughout the Old Testament, and it is referring to idols or filthy, idolatrous practices, particularly as it pertains to the pagan idolatrous practice. And the Jews clearly knew the meaning of this word, abomination, as it pertained even to their holy city and temple. Back a couple hundred years ago from the time in which Jesus is here speaking, in 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes profaned the temple with his pagan actions by coming into the temple and sacrificing a pig on the altar to the god Zeus. The Jews understood at that time that that was the abomination of desolation. They knew what abomination meant. And even while some may have thought at the time that was a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, it neither fits the rest of his prophecy. And in Jesus' time, as he's speaking to his disciples, he says, no, that's still yet to come. It'll happen in this generation, but it is yet to come. In A.D. 66 to A.D. 70, we see a similar event would occur to that of Antiochus Epiphanes. In Luke's gospel, we have a little more clarity and, and, and commentary when he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that the end is near, that the desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all these things are written, may be fulfilled. The abomination of desolations, as Luke would have us to understand it, were the armies themselves who would invade the holy city and invade the temple in the holy city because those two go together. And they would desecrate everything in the temple and in the holy city. And when they stand in the holy place, not merely just the temple, but the temple in the, in the city, both go together. We have the beginning of the abomination of desolation that began in A.D. 67. And that happened when the Edomites, now remember how I mentioned Jacob and Esau? The Edomites were a long uh, enemy of Israel. The Edomites, the Edomians would then come and surround the city in A.D. 68 with 20,000 soldiers as they laid siege against Jerusalem. Josephus, who at the time was a Jewish historian, and taking all the annals of what was going on in these Jewish wars, reported this in his chronicles of that. As the Edomites lay outside the wall... There broke out a prodigious storm with the largest showers of rain, with continual lightnings and terrible thunderings and amazing concussions and bellowings of the earth. That was, uh, that was in an earthquake. These things were a manifest indication that some destruction was coming upon men when the system of the world was put into disorder, and anyone would guess that these wonders foreshadowed some grand calamities that were coming. And Josephus was not a Christian, he was a Jew, he was a Jewish writer and a historian, and he was writing it from a Jewish perspective. 
that this beginning of the abomination of desolation was beginning to happen, this was the last now opportunity for anyone in the city to flee, to get out. Anyone who wished to flee had to do so without delay. This surrounding of the city by the Edomites was the beginning of this, and this was their last opportunity. When the Edomites finally broke into the city walls, they went immediately to the temple where they slaughtered 8,500 people, slitting their throats. The temple was overflowing with blood. The Edomites rushed out into the streets and houses and killed indiscriminately everyone they met, including the high priest. According to Josephus, this event marked the beginning of the destruction of the city. And for the next two years, the abomination of desolation would continue until the final climax when Titus, with his Roman legions, entered the city and desecrated the temple, burned the city and the temple, and made an utter destruction of the holy place. This was the abomination of desolations that has already happened. Philip Schaff, in his history of the Christian church, says this in quoting of Josephus. Titus, according to Josephus, intended at first to save that magnificent work of architecture, speaking about the temple, as a trophy of victory and perhaps from some superstitious fear. And when the flames threatened to reach the Holy of Holies, he forced his way through the flame and smoke over the dead and the dying to arrest the fire. But the destruction was determined by a higher decree. His own soldiers, roused to madness by the stubborn resistance and greedy of the golden treasures, could not restrain from the work of destruction. At first the halls around the temple were set on fire. Then firebrand was hurled through the golden gate. When the flames arose, then Jews raised a hideous yell and tried to put out the fire, while others, clinging to the last convulsive gasp to their messianic hopes, rested in the declaration of a false prophet that God in the midst of the conflagration of the temple would give a signal for the deliverance of his people. The legions vied with each other for the feeding of the flames and made the unhappy people feel the full force of their unchained rage. Soon the whole prodigious structure was in blaze and illuminated the skies. It was burned on the 10th of August of A.D. 70, the same day of the year on which, according to the tradition, the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. No one, says Josephus, can conceive a louder, more terrible shriek then arose from all the skies during the burning of the temple. A shout of victory and jubilee of the legions surrounded through the wailings of the people, now surrounded with fire and sword, increased the deafening roar. Yet the misery itself was more terrible than the disorder. The hill on which the temple stood was seething hot, but seemed enveloped to its base in one sheet of flame. The blood was larger in quantity than the fire, and those who were slain more in number than those who slew them. The ground was nowhere visible, all covered with corpses over the heaps of the soldiers pursued fugitives. The Romans planted their eagles on the shapeless ruins over against the eastern gate, offered sacrifices to them, and proclaimed Titus the imperator with the greatest acclamation and joy. This was the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. 
F.F. Bruce would comment further. He says, This action following as it did the cessation of the daily sacrifice three weeks earlier must have been sensed by many Jews, as evidently it did Josephus, a new and final fulfillment of Daniel's vision of a time when the continual burnt offering would be taken away and the abomination of desolation set up. The abomination of desolation was the ungodly pagan intruders that desecrated the holy place and caused the great desolation. It was fulfilled of the prophecies of Daniel, and that fulfillment came in A.D. 67 to A.D. 70. The abomination was inseparable from the great tribulation, which we'll turn to next Lord's Day. But we have to remember this was the hand of God upon a rebellious, unfruitful, and rejecting generation of Jews, His own people. A covenant relationship with God is one where we're living either in a bountiful blessings or as we are faithful and we bow our knee to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ or we live in a horrific curse if we do not. There is no fence riding. There is no middle ground. You either bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus or you're going to be under His wrath forever. This is a sobering reminder that what happened to Jerusalem is also something that the church should heed. Romans 11, again using a garden illustration or an agricultural illustration of a cultivated olive tree. He speaks of Israel as one that is being cut off from that olive tree and the Gentiles grafted in. But he warns the church, he says, if God can do that with uh, the, 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 the Israelites, He can also do it with you. He makes it very clear that if you're not a fruitful people, if you're not fruitful in your life, if you're not a fruitful church, God can come and take away our lampstand and snuff out our light. He can come not only to do that, but He will judge us severely for not being a fruitful vine abounding in that covenant grace, being strong in the character that He is developing in us. The character of the fruit of the Spirit, the character of the Beatitudes, the character of Christian love in 1 Corinthians 13, along with all of those applications. God desires a faithful people. And may He grant that to us at Heritage and for our children and our children's children. The lesson in this for us today is, are we faithful and are we fruitful? If we're faithful, we will be fruitful. Let's bow our knee to King Jesus. Let's submit to His Lordship. Let's come more under that Lordship. And that's what we pray for when we pray, Thy kingdom come. And let's be faithful to Him so that we can see a bountiful blessing upon His congregation here and around the world. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we come to this very sobering text in the Bible, it is not something that we are considering still in our future, 
but something that is past, but something that we need to learn from. As Christ's kingdom came to this earth in Christ and He set up His kingdom here upon the earth, a a, a dominion and a reign that has been going on for over 2,000 years. He desires a people that would bow their knee to the King, to the glory of the Father. And how thankful we are that you have shown us the King Jesus and have taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and put us into the kingdom of your dear Son, where we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. Lord, if there is one here among us, or even more than one, that does not know you, that has not bowed their knee to King Jesus, having confessed their sins, having turned from them and called upon your name to save them and bowed their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ to pick up their cross and to follow him wherever he may lead and to do whatever he commands. We pray that your spirit would open up their hearts even now and have them joyfully and gladly come to the Lordship and reign of Jesus in their lives. We pray, Father, that you would bless this church with fidelity, covenant fidelity. And where we are falling short of your glory, we pray you would square us up, that we would be faithful and not have our light quenched. We pray where we have been grieving to the Spirit of God, that you would sift through our hearts and try our thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the everlasting way. We pray you'd forgive us for our corporate sins, where we sin collectively together, even in how we live our lives one with another that falls short of your glory. That you'd forgive us of our individual and personal sins that do not bring glory to Christ, but are destructive to our own temple and tabernacles, and to our families, and to our friends, and to the church. Lord, we ask for your cleansing. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your blessing. Keep us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. And grant us, O Lord, to be a a joyful, fruitful vine in your garden. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.